You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Melody Hobson, Ariel Investment co-CEO and president, joins the Post to discuss her company's new initiative to help minority-owned businesses and the role corporate America can play in addressing systemic racism. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Project Black is a new initiative from Ariel Alternatives, which is an arm of Ariel Investments, the first Black-owned mutual fund firm in the nation. The goal? Turn minority-owned businesses in key sectors into leading suppliers to Fortune 500 companies. The overarching goal? Closing the racial wealth gap in America. Leading this initiative, Melody Hobson, co-CEO of Ariel Investments. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, so let's just get right down into it. How did, well, one, explain more fully what Project Black is, and in that, tell us how this came about. Okay, I'll give you the short version. So what it is, is it's an effort underneath a new business that we've created, a new subsidiary called Aerial Alternatives, to scale sustainable minority businesses, where we put two things together that we think are crucial to success, capital and customers. We want those minority businesses to be of the scale that they can be tier one suppliers to Fortune 500 companies. Now that might sound easy, but 95% of MBEs, minority business enterprises in this country today, have less than $5 million in revenue. Because of that, the big companies that are out there that want to do business with Black and Latinx companies are often precluded to do, from doing so because of our existing scale. How did it come about? Very quickly, it was a call from Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, where I'm on the board. And Jamie was basically reaching out to me this summer in the wake of all of the travesties that we saw and that we know exist every day in this country that were going on around race and murder. And he said, a lot of people want to help black business. And he started to brainstorm ideas. And I said, I have one. And I came back to him with a memo. And in that memo, I called it, my code name for it was Project Black. And so how long did it take you to come up with that memo? Was it more a than a day? It sounds like it was. Yeah, and I reached out to a couple of really smart people who have since become our accelerants or members of our advisory board. We're calling them accelerants because their brand, reputation, smarts, et cetera, will help scale this idea and then ultimately help scale the businesses. But I reached out to people and I gave them the memo and I said, rip it apart. And by Monday, it was on Jamie's desk. And when he got it, he said, wow, you've really thought about this. <laughs> and um, I cut, I chuckled. You know, I have to go back to something you said in your your first answer, a, a statistic you put out there, 95% of MBEs have less than five, was, say that again? $5 million in revenue. Yeah, so most are, most are really small. We call it the scale challenge. There is a real scale challenge out there. We don't have the scale to be able to participate in this economy in the way that sh we should and need to. At the same time, Fortune 500 companies right now spend about 2% of their spend, about $125 billion a year with MBEs, with minority business enterprises. Now, their stated goal is to have that number be more in the neighborhood of 12 to 15%. 
which means there's a trillion dollar opportunity there if we can line up that opportunity with the right businesses. So this is where we say the capital, being able to have the financial strength behind those businesses, the operational excellence, the minority leadership, and the customers becoming a tier one supplier, we think that is a winning combination and something, quite frankly, that has never been tried before. You know, I've been sitting here thinking, you know, why why aren't um, minority business enterprises, why aren't they able to scale? Does it all go back to um, limitations and access to capital? Is that the key thing? So it is, capital is part of it, and that certainly has been problematic. But the customer base, we always talk about the fact that many people mention that there's an issue around access to capital. But this is also an issue around access to customers, because I promise you, if you have a fistful of receivables, JP Morgan and other banks will lend you money. So the customer base, having access to those Fortune 500 uh, buyers is very, very important. And heretofore, we haven't had that same access. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that this idea was not just born by me. My co-founder in this initiative is Les Brun, who has a phenomenal history and track record of having start, started a major company called Hamilton Lane, which is today a publicly traded company, $4 billion market cap. Um, but he is he is the one who is birthing this business with me. Mm -hmm. And so what are, you, what are your benchmarks for success? How will you know um, that Project Black is doing what it set out to do? We have a bunch and we're gonna hold ourselves accountable. So first let's talk about the businesses that we're going to buy. We're targeting businesses somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million to a billion dollars in revenue. We're targeting businesses that can be, again, tier one suppliers and scaled over time. Our goal is to install black and brown leadership in the C-suite. It doesn't mean people get fired. It means that as we enhance and grow all of the opportunities in the business, we wanna see exceptional diversity in the company from the boardroom all the way down to the rank and files. Success will be the people who work in the company owning part of it. So we'd like to see widespread equity ownership, which will help narrow the wealth gap that exists in our community. Over a decade, we think that we can add 100,000 black. And so we also think that to the extent we have the opportunity to scale these businesses and to branch out into new areas, we can put them, we can locate them in underrepresented communities and therefore help revitalize them. At the end of the day, a decade from now, we would expect to own six to 10 platform businesses that we've been able to scale. And our goal is to create billion dollar black businesses. So uh, you, as you said, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, the head of JP Morgan Chase, uh, on whose board you sit is, you know, one of the folks, are you looking for, I don't even know the right terminology, because uh, I'm in politics, not, fi <laughs> not finance, but are there other, are, are there other, I guess this is the right word, investors, other people who are backing uh, Project Black in the way that J.P. Morgan is? So J.P. Morgan is a strategic partner, and they're co-investing with us up to $200 million. And what we would say right now is we're the launch phase. So we're at the beginning of all of this. So first thing was just to go out and tell the world what we've do, done and what we plan to do, file all the names. We've been able to assemble the, the starting lineup in terms of the talent for Project Black. So we're very, very excited about that. 
So that's where we are at this stage. And this will unfold over time. So then how has the pandemic, because you know the pandemic has put the spotlight on a whole lot of disparities within American society. And I'm wondering how has the pandemic exposed and or exacerbated um, the structural barriers that have led to, or that have held minority owned businesses back? It, it, the pandemic has certainly uh, decimated lots and lots of businesses, lots and lots of industries, but minority businesses have been particularly negatively affected in this environment. There's no question about it. We've had a major, major setback. A lot of those businesses are small. A lot of those businesses do not have the financial wherewithal to sustain themselves through months and months of, of impaired revenue streams or no revenue streams. And as a result of that, we've seen doors close. This will take decades to rebuild from, this period that we're in. And we're hoping that efforts like Project Black will will be able to supercharge some of that recovery. But we have a long way to go. We know that our community, when you know America catches the cold, uh, Black and Latinx communities get pneumonia. And so we've seen that play out certainly in terms of the business community right now. Mm -hmm. I wanna uh, broaden the aperture here a bit and talk about, get you to talk about something you mentioned in a TED Talk from 2014. And you talked about the need for Americans to be color brave rather than color blind. Um, your Twitter profile, the cover photo reads, be color brave. You even have hashtag be color brave. Um, we've been through a lot in, um, in the ensuing seven years since you gave that speech, especially this, the, the last year. Have we become more brave or more blind? I'm going to always take the hopeful route here, and I'm going to say we've become more brave, but we have to be much braver than we are. So we're in the early stages of the kind of bravery that we're going to have to see, and it's bravery in a completely different place. So what I mean by that, I've been calling this Civil Rights 3.0. 1.0 was the Emancipation Proclamation. 2.0 was the Civil Rights era in the 1960s with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. 3.0 is this period, this modern day period that we're experiencing right now, in my opinion. And this modern day period has landed at the foot of corporate America. Heretofore, government had to step up, set up new laws and regulations and the like for our society. Now, corporate America is having to respond in ways that we've never had to respond before. We have to be color brave in a very different way. And you've seen corporations now really understand that they cannot run away from this issue. They must, must take up the mantle, whether they want to or not. And as a result of that, as Les Brun, my uh, partner would say, we've had these pronouncements and announcements about what people plan to do. But I've said, there's been a lot of talk. Now we need the elbow grease. Now we need the action. We need things to come through in tangible ways where we are held accountable as a community for the outcomes and we're not just working on it. You, you know, what you said there um, sort of drives home a point that I've been been making, I guess, privately, and that is for because of there's there's no action here in in Washington to 
like tackle the big things, tackle the big problems. It seems to me that corporations and in particular CEOs have been doing things, at least I have never seen before, and that is stepping into the realm of policy, making pronouncements um, that you know, open them up to you know the world of politics and and all the stuff that comes with it. And so I'm just I'm wondering in this role that you you say, where corporations must get in, is that being driven by the values of the CEO, or is that being driven by the customers who are now demanding that the people they shop with, the people they do business with, reflect their their personal values? I think corporate America is getting it from all sides. I think part of it is the customer. I think part of the issue that is driving change is the actual employee, the people inside of the company. We're seeing people saying, I'm not gonna stand for this. I mean, you've had walkouts in certain companies in Silicon Valley. When would that have happened before? In, in prior generations, you'd fear losing your job. People are standing around, up around ideals and ideas. That, that they believe believe in very, very strongly. I mean, the example that I give just in your own backyard is the Washington Football Club. Its former name, its CEO was very adamant about the fact that its name would not change. And yet, by all accounts, it was its sponsor, Federal Express, that said, we won't keep paying with this name. And when millions of dollars were at stake, suddenly there was a change. And so I think all forces are at work. And I actually like that because I think we are all accountable. I think change in this way, equal opportunity, narrowing the wealth gap, creating an anti-racist society, that is a team sport. I saw a sign in a, in a protest on television where someone said racism is a pandemic. I thought about it and I thought it was brilliant and I thought it was actually true. And the one thing we know about this pandemic that we're living through, COVID, it takes all of us to solve for it. All of us have to wear masks. All of us have to socially distance. We need 70% of the population to get vaccinated to have herd immunity. It takes a village and then not just in America, the world. And so when I think about racism as a pandemic, I think those same rules apply. This is a up and down the chain effort that in terms of that is the only way that it will ultimately be solved. And it will still take a very, very, very long time. And you know, I'm, I'm wondering, yes, racism is a, is a pandemic. It is a, it is a disease. Um, but unlike the coronavirus, which has vaccines, what's, is there a vaccine for the pandemic of racism? Or is it just continual enlightenment, education, knowledge? What I say in my TED talk is what I believe. I think, again, this is not about edicts from on high in a corporate scenario where the values of the CEO get transitioned down in the company because that doesn't work. That's not systematic change because that person leaves and then you, you, know, you have someone else and everything gets erased. So how do you put this in the DNA of a culture or DNA of a community? And I think that that comes from all of us. It's not waiting for someone to do something. It's acting on your own. So in my TED Talk, I talk about inviting people in your life who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't act like you, who don't come from where you come from. But that is the way to really create an environment where we can heighten the amount of understanding and tolerance that we have as it relates to each other. And I really push this idea of being color brave as opposed to color blind. 
And I'm very deliberate in those words, I was, because I'd had so many good intentioned, often white people, tell me that they were colorblind. And I would say to them, and being colorblind, you can't see around you that there is, that it's a homogeneous environment, that there is no diversity. So instead of being colorblind, be color brave. Be willing to see all of the, the differences around you. I see myself as you see me as a black woman, and I'm okay with you acknowledging that as opposed to suggesting you're colorblind and you don't see it. it. That is not working. It's like going back to the idea of Project Black. There are so many things that have been tried for decades now, and we're saying these things aren't working. It's time to be bolder and to try new things. I have to get you to, to, to tell us this story um, that I've heard, the, the story of being taken to a, a back room while visiting a, a big company with Harold Ford, uh, and being asked, and this was the quote, where are your uniforms? What was up with that? It's the opening of my TED Talk. It's a true story. Harold Ford was running for US Senate. And uh, he called me one day. We were very good friends and are. And he said, you know, Melody, I need some pre national press. Do you have any ideas? And we're just like pipsqueaks. But I had a friend who was a major, major person, one of the biggest media companies in the world. And so I reached out to her and I told her what we were trying to accomplish. And she said, why don't you come and do an editorial board lunch? I'll arrange it. You come with Harold. And you know, you'll add a different level of credibility because you're in business. You two come together. So we met at the office in New York, at this office. He flew from Memphis. I flew from Chicago. I joke with people we're wearing our best suits. You know, we look like shiny new pennies. We're so excited for this opportunity. And we get upstairs and the receptionist says, follow up, follow me. So we're talking to each other because we haven't seen each other. We're catching up. We're not paying attention to where we're going in any way. And all of a sudden we enter this room completely stark, empty. And she turns and looks at us and she says, where are your uniforms? And we were like stunned. And I mean, just really stunned. And all of a sudden my friend runs in because she knew we were taken to the wrong place. Clearly we were the lunch. And you know, she, all of the, the, the color drained out of her face. And I joked with her, I looked at her and I said, now, don't you think this is a reason why we need more than one black person in the US Senate? Because at that time we only had Barack Obama. And you know, I'm not sure how, how much she was, of a mood she was in to laugh because she was mortified but it really did make the point. And again, the point about people's mental models that have to be reshaped and changed and broken in some cases because their expectations of us do not line up to, with the reality of who we are. You know, someone, I, I, it's gonna sound weird when I say I love stories like these, but I love stories like the one you just told um, and the one that Roz Brewer told when we were at the, I did a uh, conversation with her at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2019, because it sort of shows in stark relief for people what African-Americans deal with, no matter where they are on, on the ladder. We're looking there at the picture of you with Roz Brewer, and I'm bringing her up because she, next month, will become the CEO of Walgreens. And when she takes the helm, she will be the only black woman who's the head of a Fortune 500 company. But also, she will then only be the second 
black woman to run a Fortune 500 company. Of course, our friend Ursula Burns, who was the, the head of Xerox, was the first. And so in that conversation with Ross Brewer, we were responding to a young woman in the audience who was asking Roz her advice on how to deal with being the only one. How do you deal with being the only one? Well, I have a friend who is just a remarkable person. His name is uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton, and he's a seven-time F1 Formula One champion. And he says, uh, you know, being the first or only Black person of anything is a proud and lonely moment. And I, re I listened to him say that once, and he's like a little brother to me, and I literally, I got goosebumps and kind of welled up. Like, I could feel it flush through my whole body, this idea that it's a proud and lonely moment. And those two counter emotions that go at each other, I felt many, many times. But I have to tell you, I also, I think um, first and only is not enough. I always tell people, some people get a lot of, you know, psychic value out of that. I do not. I think first of many is the job that we have, that Roz has, that I have at Starbucks now as, as incoming chair, that we have to make sure that they're, we're creating an opportunity and opening up doors, but we first and foremost most, we first and foremost must be excellent. And, and that excellence will then allow others to ride behind us with their excellence. And so how does it feel? It is, it is proud and lonely. But at the same time, I would say it gives you a tremendous advantage at times. So I tell people, I, used to, I walk into rooms all the time in the financial services sector where I'm the only black person, the only black woman. And I joke with people. They'll come up to me and they'll know my name. And I literally hmm. joke with people. It's like I can have a one name name like Melody, like Cher or Beyonce because there's no one else. And so I said, OK, if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm going to be memorable. I'm going to stand out for my ideas, my point of view. I'm going to be unafraid. I will be brave. I will fight for what is right without being militant, but hopefully to help create the opportunity for people to realize the opportunity that comes with people like me, because talent and genius do not discriminate. And the, despite the halls of many of, of uh, many tall building, buildings in corporate America suggesting the best talent and the best genius is amongst white men, Roz Brewer is a classic example of why that is not true. And there are other Roz Brewers. They just haven't had the opportunity yet. And that's our job. And, and that, you know, I, that is wonderful to hear. And you are obviously very strong. All the, all the, all the great words. But I also wonder, where do you, being the only and the first can also be tiring and can be sort of soul sapping. And so what do you say to those firsts or firsts and onlys or the onlys out there for whom having that mantle is just a lot and they need, they need someone to hold them up, push, push them forward. What advice would you give them? I give them two pieces of advice. So the first one is um, you have to have allies in this society. And Roz and I are I, on that picture that I posted of the two of us. I call her my corporate sister. I have many. 
And I believe very strongly that we must stick together. We must root for each other. We must be there in those lonely and dark moments. And we must be lifelines to each other. And that's what I intend to be. And I have many, many who have been that for me. And so, you know, there's power in numbers. And even though there aren't a lot of us, we know each other and are there for each other. And we have similar values, which is really, really great. The other thing I would say is I, I did a talk at Princeton a couple of years ago and there were a bunch of young students there and they were brilliant and they were black and Latinx. And they're like, it's so exhausting, Melody. We have to explain everything. We have to tell them all about ourselves because it's true. We know more about them than they know about us. But I told them, I said, no excuse. You're the top, top, top in society. And because of that, you have this, this cross that you must bear. And I have to tell you, on my worst day, worst day that I've ever had in my professional life, I always remind myself, it is, I am not in a field picking cotton. And so to have mm -hmm. that perspective, I think is super, super important. And it allows you to reorient yourself around the real burden that you have. You know, one of the things I say in, in speeches when I give them to sort of put this time that we're in into context for the audience is to remind people that I and my cousins are the first generation in our family to not have to pick cotton. And that sort of reorients the, reorients the mind to make sure that the past isn't necessarily all that far back in the past. Speaking of Princeton and firsts, Hobson College, Hobson College at Princeton University will be the first residential college at Princeton named for a black woman and will be built on the site of First College, formerly known as Wilson College. How important is it to you that your family name, your name, will be on a building at your alma mater? It wasn't about my name. It was about the idea of me. So for every Black or Latinx student that walks on that campus when they're a freshman and they're walking around the buildings and walking around the campus, and they see all these big names, Forge, uh, Rockefeller and Forbes, et cetera. When they say Hobson, I want them to think, she's like me and I belong here. She came from where she came from. She was the youngest of six kids, had a single mom. She used to get evicted and get her lights disconnected and her phone turned off. And yet she can be on this building to suggest to me that I can be anything. And so it's the idea of what America is all about, what opportunity really is, and making sure that people understand their past doesn't have to be their future and that we can change this narrative. Change the narrative of Woodrow Wilson's name being on that building who was overtly racist and does not line up with the modern values of the university and change the narrative for those young people who might think, maybe I don't belong here. Have them understand, as I've suggested before, talents and genius do not discriminate. And that campus is for everyone. So it wasn't about my name, it was the idea of me. Another thing on your Twitter feed, and it's pinned, so it's right at the top of your Twitter feed, is that very powerful image of Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, walking in the footsteps of Ruby Bridges, who is the, the young girl there in the shadow, um, the silhouette there from that famous Norman Rockwell painting, why, why is that image so powerful and so important to you? Early well up when I see it. And when I posted it, I said, she is all of us. 
it just is, you know, Ruby Bridges is all of us and Kamala is all of us. And just owning that and really understanding the power of that jump in history just over the course of a generation. That is what progress is. Still not enough, still woefully inadequate, but you, we have to celebrate these moments of change. And that is magnificent change. And speaking of change, we're going to uh, go back to the beginning of this circle and Project Black. Um, a year from now, if you're back at Washington Post Live, what will you report back to us? We will have birthed the company. Aerial alternatives will exist. The initiative will have begun. We will be out there buying businesses. And we will be out there starting on this path and this journey that we have to meaningfully change uh, the complexion of corporate America when it comes to minority business enterprises of scale and the leadership of those businesses, as well as the ownership of those businesses um, so that everyone can benefit from the opportunity. How much, um, how much resistance are you anticipating um, for what you're trying to do? I'm chuckling because the questions are, are, are very targeted at times and they're, um, people are making points with what they're asking. And it's interesting because part of what people see at times, I'm not saying this is everyone, but certainly we've gotten questions that suggest that they see life as a zero sum game. That if black and Latinx people are winning, white people are losing. And we are just not about that. We're about growing the opportunities so that more of us can be included. It doesn't have to mean that someone loses something. And so part of the resistance, especially when we talk about some of these businesses we will buy will not be minority owned when we buy them. They will become de facto minority owned through our purchase. And so people will say, well, are you gonna fire the white people? Of course not. That's not how we think about business and how we think about life and no investor would, would work in that way. We will consider all the decisions that have to be made when you are acquire of a new company and put in the right leadership and the right strategy, et cetera, that will allow us to scale growth. But it's interesting that certain minds go to what they perceive to be a loss. And we see win, win, win everywhere we look when we think about what is possible here. Well, when, when all are included, all are included and everyone benefits from that. Melanie Hobson, co-CEO of Ariel Investments, um, co-leader of Ariel Alternatives and Project Black. Thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in tomorrow. Tune in for my conversation with San Francisco Mayor London Breed about how her city is navigating the coronavirus pandemic and the recent attacks against Asian Americans in the Bay Area. That's at 2 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. In the meantime, or until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.